Well, hello and welcome to The Wine List, episode eight. I am Oliver Turnbull and this is a podcast about people who like to have the odd glass of wine, but are really intrigued about the process of getting it from the grape to the glass and how to order from a wine list with confidence. I would struggle and have to give up after about five seconds without the help of my friend of 30 years, the fabulous, the erudite and the highly educated Mr. Richard Lane. Richard, good evening. Oh, well, thanks. Oh, sorry, you caught me on Wednesday. I thought you were talking about someone else. Uh, anyway, um, hi, all. Yes, as you say, episode eight, which means we're drawing towards the end of this series. Let's crack on. So the title of this, uh, invented by your good self, shall I reveal? Oh, go on. Well, it's such a teaser, this one. I wonder if people will work out <laughs> what it's about. Yeah, that's right. So you, you've combined two wine styles. I'll give you that clue. Uh, and come up with pink and fizz. That's right. So, I mean, I wasn't feeling terribly creative, sorry. But it just occurred to me, you know, we, we, we're doing this little gentle sort of romp through introductory-ish kind of levels of, of, of wine, really, and, and getting you more confident with wine and the wine list. We, we've got to cover pink wine and we've got to cover sparkling wine. And in, and in the final lap, we're going to talk a little bit about fortified wine. So, yeah, just trying to, to cover the bases, really. And it's rosé and sparkling in this week's Epal. No, I definitely want to know uh, about both. I think, yeah, it will be completely incomplete and remiss of both of us if we didn't touch on it. And I'm looking forward to massively uh, how you're going to convolute a tune out of your fiddle to complement the name of the um, episode. But we'll, we'll see about that. Maybe it'll be a wonderful surprise. It's probably a surprise to me because I haven't <laughs> figured out what it's going to be yet. So anyway, yeah, uh, th- that'll come later. The wines. Um, I've noticed that we've got an extra little um, rosé that's snuck in there, Rich. Oh yes, need to explain that. So let's just 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 talk about the wines first of all. So basically, we're going to talk about rosé first, and then go on and talk about sparkling wine. And people who are looking at the website and were listening to last week's ep, of course, will know that we're tasting uh, a rosé called Tavel from uh, the Southern Rhone in the south of France, and that we're also tasting in our sparkling section later on an English sparkling wine called Night Ember. But I just thought it would be fun just to throw in a you know I suppose if we're doing an experiment, we might call it a control, and that is. Is, um, a supermarket rosé. We've both got a Coach Provence rosé from the supermarket for just under a tenner. And I thought when we talk about rosé, because style matters and appearances matter when it comes to rosé, which is why I thought it'd be good to have another rosé thrown in. So I hope that hasn't thrown people completely, but I'm sure most people are probably familiar with what a Coach Provence supermarket rosé is like. So that's the little additional wine. Very interesting, and I will come back to it. I know, very interesting when you say appearance is really important in the uh, in the rosé subdomain of, of wine. There's something about the human nature is that you get attached to a particular look and feel of a thing, whether it's a wine or a car or even a sort of coat of paint or whatever it is, and that feels familiar and you carry on ordering the same, uh, whether it's the um, highest quality or not, really. Familiarity is, a, is, is quite a pull for the human for the human mind, isn't it? It certainly is, and particularly in, in, in these days, all where everyone's so obsessed with what we're eating, what we're drinking, taking photographs of it. I mean, golly, the number of things I see, not that I can see the photos, obviously, but the number of stuff I see on social media about people 
photographing their meals or their dinner out and all the rest of it. And uh, in fact, my wife Liz read, read a really good birthday card to me recently in the shop. She said, "Oh, let's let's buy this one for your sister." I said, "What is it?" I said, "Well, there are, there's a couple out having a meal, and and, and the waiter comes over and said, "Is everything okay? You haven't taken a photograph of your food yet." <laughs> <laughs> It is, and if you go to a concert or a gig or whatever, and people are watching the gig through their phones, it's bizarre. And you will never watch that again, will you, if you go to a concert and film it? You'll never sit down and say, how about that really sort of jittery footage of, of, of the three tall blokes in front of us uh, with the band in the background? Very bad audio as well. But yeah, that is strange. I wonder if this is just a phase we're going through as social media becomes the norm. Maybe we'll calm down after a while and actually live our lives through our eyes and optic nerves. Exactly. Well, that would be good, wouldn't it? So, uh, but actually, before we get to the rose, the roses, the roses, a bit of feedback from Ep7, our plunge into our olfactory bulbs. Do you remember that? Dig into the mailbag. I loved Ep7 and the lovely SAT system, a lovely systematic way of uh, tasting wine. It appealed to both my love of wine which is ever increasing and my love of a good old system and a good characterization a ca- categorization um, uh, kind of mechanism as well so yes what's the world saying about our um, epic episode seven <laughs> for wine special well i think it's fair to say that opinions are divided oliver about our progress in episode seven <laughs> some people like your good self absolutely love the sat uh, which has been lent to us uh, by wset who do own the copyright on it just to repeat we're not taking it you know in a naughty kind of way Loving the structure and understanding wine better by having a structural system next to it, as we used last time. Brilliant. Other people saying, yeah, enjoyed the chat, but Richard, you're sounding too much like a WACT tutor and using the WACT kind of language. You know, it's a little bit exclusive. And can we have a bit less of that? I thought, okay. Then we had some people saying, loved Oliver's truffles. They really got your truffles. Oh, good. You you know, the truffles trump the mushrooms, uh, if you like. Then there was just a comment saying, oh, People talking about wine and truffles, pretentious kids. So, I mean, you can't please um, everyone. Oh, but actually, I just like the fact that people are engaged and giving us some some comments and some feedback. And uh, and generally, I think people, um, like, like your good self, I do hope many people out there are, A, having some entertainment and B, really, you know, getting something which is making them think a bit differently about wine. Thank you very much for your feedback. We don't mind whether it's uh, positive or constructive, actually. In fact, the constructive is often more useful. But that, please, that shouldn't stop you um, writing and saying, golly, I'm enjoying it, of course. Oh, and by the way, did, did we not get, I was imagining we might get some kind of prize for being the only podcast in history to have mentioned um, olfactory bulbs twice in the same podcast. Yeah, Great support for the olfactory bulb. It just sounds so great, doesn't it? And yeah. a lot of people didn't realise it was there. Yeah. But again, how often do people think about the biology of how they smell and taste? Not often. I just think the olfactory bulb sounds like an old piece of equipment you'd have in a chemistry lab in the 70s, like a Liebig condenser. We just pop it through the olfactory bulb and then the end alcohol comes out. That's it. But it isn't that. Not in a business of patting ourselves on the back about last week's ep. What we are going to do, we're not going to, you know, obviously focus as much on SAT as we did last time. But obviously now that you're a more experienced taster and I really felt your progress particularly in the last Apple, will apply it a bit today. As I said, we've got two rosés and a sparkling, so uh, let us crack on. Okay, all rosés are poured. If you can have your supermarket Cote de Provence rosé on the left 
and your Tavel rosé from the Southern Rhone on the right. Tell me about the contrast in appearance between these two rosé wines, because as I said, most people these days are thinking rosé is very, very pale and pink. That's very much the, the, the modern style. How do they look? For once, this is incredibly easy for me. Some of those reds that you were asking me to differentiate um, earlier on in the uh, series, I kind of struggled a bit between, uh, you know, ruby and red. But these two are like chalk and cheese, the proverbial. So you're uh, Mabby? Mabby or maybe? No, it can't be maybe. <laughs> no, don't, it's don't, definitely don't, maybe. Not don't, definitely maybe. Don't, no, it's not a maybe. It's absolute. It's, um, it's domain maybe is the Tavel from the Southern Rhone. If you imagine the Mastercard symbol, which has been a symbol for decades, so you've got one sort of red circle and one yellow circle uh, intertwined, uh, it's almost as stark as that in the difference in the colours. So one golden pale yellow, very very pale, uh, the one from the Côte de France, and the Mabi is red it's almost a red wine but it, it it's certainly classified as rosé i mean i would recognize it as rosé so anybody would yeah like a pale red wine halfway between red and the um a Côte de Provence but the the striking thing for me is a sort of difference in color one has a sort of yellowy feel and one a reddy pinky feel on the eye easy to spot from about 100 yards off interesting you use the word kind of do you use the word yellow or yellowy almost to, to, to describe the Cote de Provence yeah yellowy orangey but pale do you know what Rich One, a funny thing is happening to me and it's all about familiarity and what you have in your head connecting rosé what the neurons in your head say is rosé like and it is this Cote de Provence it looks more like a, a rosé to me if you see what I mean which is uh, obviously ridiculous but it's it's his familiarity this must be the kind of rosé I've seen it's the kind of rosé my wife drinks and loves Excellent on appearance hole. Doesn't sound too difficult, but um, just give me a very brief thoughts on, on the nose and um, and then we'll go on and quickly do the, the palette and then we'll come back to them later on. I'm swirling around. Oh, and by the way, um, I actually tutored someone at dinner uh, into sort of how to swirl a wine around the glass to get more vapours out, uh, to get more on the nose. And uh, she was quite impressed. And I, I obviously I gave you credit. I, I'd wish you'd been there, really. Rich, you'd have been rather proud of me, I think. Well, I'm proud of you now, Hull. Fantastic. And again, it's a simple thing thing that perhaps people like you previously would have thought oh, this is a pretentious thing to do to swirl your wine glass but honestly it can make such a difference particularly if the wines are chilled and our roses here have been chilled mine have been out of the fridge for half an hour but they're still evolving a bit in, because you know they're warming up a touch uh, which they need yeah. to and, and swirling the glass is all part of that process you know releasing aromas you know it's not pretentious it's we want to enjoy the wine you know often people are spending quite a lot of money on wine and if you're not drinking it or tasting it or smelling it at the optimum temperature and getting the aromas and flavors then you're losing out so i think it's no brainer really yeah i completely agree and now i understand what it's all about it really really helps and i, I don't feel foolish i just feel it's part of the ritual and the ritual is nice as well so um i am smelling uh yeah fruity so it's fruity the Côte de Provence is fruity I'm getting more confidence now in not only in smelling something that I recognize and putting a word to it but actually having the confidence just to say I'm getting melon and on that I'm getting melon it's watermelon I think it is a melony smell and I'm sort of confidently putting it out there okay so the towel different why is it different there's some more organic stuff I mean I know alcohol's an organic compound so there's going to be some organic coming in there but maybe more minerally you know they're both really nice actually i like both these smells i thought i was going to find the um, supermarket code of performance a bit weaker they're both really really nice something a bit more minerally in the old tavel that would be uh that would be my analysis which i'm getting more and more confident in pronouncing now a quick taste and then i'll um come in code de Provence first of course there's a very strange aftertaste which is not unpleasant 
and it's not Melanie, whoever she is. And it is okay, but there's not massive complexity in my view. I'm starting to um, see maybe why this is on the more economy end. It really, really not unpleasant. And you can imagine it's evocative of a sitting outside in the garden under an umbrella reading a newspaper um, with a, a few nice friends or a, a dog playing at your feet or a nice water feature. Let me try the tavel. I'm looking forward to this one, actually. Wow. Okay. There's almost a tanniny flavor here which I did not expect at all. But then again, maybe I should have done because I know that uh, skins are involved and it's much more like a red wine than the other, which I suppose, again, isn't surprising. Um, it's tasty. Lots going on. One more go. Yeah, it really feels like halfway between a red and a white, but more on the red side of anything. I was very surprised to taste tannin and the taste doesn't quite match the smell, which is interesting, but very nice. Uh, it feels like there's a lot more going on. It's different. I'd be so uh, disappointed if I don't succeed in the line test later on, not just because it's episode eight, <laughs> but because these two are really, really different. Not much time left, Oliver. Pulled up your socks. <laughs> Great. I like, the, I like the Melanie thing you picked up. Again, hello, Melanie, on the um, Cote de Provence. I thought it was nice. Soft red fruit as well. I mean, it's not particularly precise red fruit, but a little bit of kind of raspberry, strawberry and melon, I'd say, with the Cote de Provence. Totally agree with you uh, on the uh, Tavel. It smells really spicy. It's kind of quite, it's kind of kind of brooding and spicy. You can tell it's got carrots, it's got a lot of carrots on the nose. And then on, on the uh, palate, again, good observations from me, a very, very different wine. I can't even see it, and it just tastes darker. It's got a darkness to it, and and, and, it's, and it's got a, and it's got a certain spice to it. You're almost heading towards a kind of low tannin red wine variety. A little bit of tannin, not much. I mean, a tiny amount. I mean, really nothing at all. It's it's almost negligible. But it's a different proposition to the Cote de Provence Rosé. It's a different beast, and of course, the mouthfeel for me, particularly with the Tavel, is. Um, is greater there is more alcohol here i think it's 14 percent alcohol so just in the high alcohol territory which you know unusual for a rosé really the coach provence is 13 it's amazing what a difference one degree of alcohol can make to the feel of a wine yeah i'm not i'm not saying the tavel is porty or spirity but it's just got this kind of weight and spice and again that's i suppose that if you think about the Great varieties involved here. I think that's relevant too because we've certainly got some uh, in the Tavel. We've got um, we've got some Grenache and some Sanso, possibly. I'm not sure if there's any Syrah, but there's a little bit of spice. And Grenache can have a little bit of peppery spice. The um, Cote de Provence Rosé will certainly have um, the other side of Grenache, which is its kind of red fruit characteristics, and a grape called Sanso, which you get a lot in Provence, and it makes a lot of rosé wine in this very nice kind of quite inoffensive quite light red fruity style and again we've said this all along you know it's not about there being a correct style or one style being better than the other it's just that styles are different and the reason that coach provence rosé the pale really really pale pink rosé is so successful is because it's really pleasant to drink and it just makes you think of the sunshine and we haven't had a great amount of sunshine in this british summer i mean flipping weather you can't believe it can you you know some places in the world are, are, are burning away with temperatures and fires and all the rest of it. There have been floods. And in Britain, it's just been dull and ch chilly. It's almost as if we, we step aside from uh, global warming and just say, no, no, it's just business as usual, drizzle. And just these rather featureless days and with the, with the, with the BBC weather people trying to tell us that the weather's nice when they know it's actually quite shite. But anyway. Well, that was 
really good what you said is that one thing I've learned right is my vocabulary is improving and my confidence is improving so the the adjectives I use I can now you know specify a fruit and I can almost get on to spicy I know exactly what you mean by spicy now I would never uh, what did you call it ponderous or something I would never get onto that kind of ab- abstraction of uh, brooding you said brooding of the tabel I sort of know what you mean but I haven't got onto that level of adjective yet but I'm I'm starting on the ladder there seems to be um, some really descriptive adjectives and then there are some more abstract poetic if you like adjectives which do a great job but are difficult for me to pluck out of the air whereas they come second nature to you which is uh well why well, you're the master thank you very much and just a quick word on on about how rosé is made of because i mean you know clearly we're, we're aware here that it seems to be a cross between a red and a white wine outside the european union you can actually blend a red wine with a white wine, and you also can do that in champagne, but we'll talk about champagne in a sec. But inside the European Union, you, you can't blend a red wine with a white wine. So to make a rosé wine, you sort of start off with a black grape variety as if you're about to make a red wine, but then you change the process, i.e. you either do two things. You either just squeeze, press the grapes from black grapes directly, and then you sort of get a very pale liquid coming out, which could be an ultra pale kind of rosé wine. Or you can choose to do something called short maceration. Maceration, if you remember from our winemaking ep, is when you have the juice from the grapes in contact with the skins. And of course, the skins, black grape skins, contain colour, anthocyanins and flavour compounds and all the rest of it. And that's how you make red wine. And if you decide to make a rosé with a period of short maceration, when I say short, I'm talking a 12, 24 36 hours as opposed to four weeks for red wine in Bordeaux for example you know so we're talking mini kind of red wine making if you like but after that period of 24 36 hours for example the skins of those black grapes are then pressed away and then the wine making is done the fermentation just like a white wine but you've just extracted enough color for it to be a nice pretty pink so it seems I've got this right. Then there's three ways. One is simply mixing red and white, which sounds absolutely whack. It sounds the kind of answer I'd give and think I was wrong. And then there's sort of just squeeze the black grapes so you get that little hint of what the skins can give you. And then there is sort of going halfway towards making a red wine, but don't take as long, which is why it's called short maceration. Short so maceration. Three techniques. Yeah. And it's, it. so, yes, it's not even going halfway. It's going a little bit along the way to, to end up with something that is pink. Exactly. Different different ways uh, of making a wine. And the fuller-bodied wines, obviously ones with a bit more colour, maybe a touch of or a hint of tanning going on, clearly suggesting um, short maceration rather than direct press. So do you think, um, therefore, or can you can you conclude, or do you know? So the Tavel what is is probably a short maceration, one assumes? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, given, given, given the description of colour and the fact that Grenache is, is a major feature of, this, of, of Tavel Rosé and Grenache is not a deep skin variety, you would need to do quite a bit of maceration with Grenache to get some colour out of it. So I think the Tavel is definitely short maceration. I mean, it's possible that the, the Cote de Bronze Rosé is short maceration too, but maybe just for, for a short period of time. Really, really ultra-pale wines, you sometimes get a one, they almost call them gris, sometimes they're almost sort of grey, they're barely even pink. They're the ones that are more likely to be direct press. So, you know, there we go. Different ways, different different styles. Do you like rosé? Do you think it's overdone or do you think rosé has its place? Oh, that's a great, I, I feel almost unqualified to make that question and uh, to answer that question. I think it has a place. It must have a place and people like them. But I do think 
there's an element of Emperor's New Clothes. So you were talking recently when we had a chat about, you know, film stars latching onto rosé. So it's going to become a sort of lifestyle choice. But having said that, both those rosés that you've selected, including the supermarket one, are really nice. Uh, really pleasant and I would definitely be be happy to drink them I think I'd probably still call myself a a, a white wine fan still despite opening my eyes as you have to um, red and now rosé but yeah of course there's, there's, there's got to be a place for it but there is a bit of um, bit of marketing involved as well as you've mentioned and one thing which was interesting that again reminds me about how much how far I've learned you said that, that Tabel you know might have this or that grape including one grape that you mentioned that would give particular colour and I reached out to pick up the bottle to see oh I wonder what grapes are in this and then I remembered oh hang on it's French the grapes won't be on it because they don't want to help us. So I put it back. So you saved me a little job there. Great. Glad I did all. Rosé is lovely. I'm just not feeling very excited about rosé this year because I haven't been to France or to Europe and uh, stuck in the UK. We've had a bit of a bum weather summer. And for me, rosé is all about, as you said, all sitting in a deck chair with your old hat on and um, reading a book and, you know, having a nice, warm, sunny experience. And that's where rosé is at its best. That's why rosé is so amazing in the south of France. Those shimmering hot days a bit of ratatouille and some lovely food and a glass of rosé absolutely fantastic just can't quite do it in a cool english summer for me i hear you and uh it's uh it's a shame let's just say well done tavel absolutely lovely complex interesting rosé slightly out of fashion because it's not pale and pretty and pink and well done the supermarket coach Bronze rosé better than i agree with you all better than i thought it was going to be let's leave rosé there let's park the rosé let's start talking bubbles Ah, this takes me back. I was talking to you before, wasn't I, Rich, about champagne being a thing when I was brought up. My dad was sort of a self-made man, sort of working class man made good. And a bottle of champagne was a real event. And I, I think he only bought the quality stuff. Uh, and so I loved it as soon as I tasted it. And I can remember my dad, his words echoing down the decades. Well, you better work hard, son, if you want to be able to afford this. Very northern thing to say, isn't it? It's left me with a, a love of champagne. I really, really like it. But it's almost like it has to be a really, really good one for me to really enjoy it. And I think that's because it was always such an event when I was a kid to have a bottle of champagne, maybe a bottle at uh, Christmas, maybe at Easter, maybe um, my dad's birthday or whatever. But yeah, when I think of champagne, it always takes me back to that. So I'm really quite excited to um, drink an English one, question mark? Well, uh, yes, th- I'm glad you've been banging on about champagne all because we're not t- t- tasting champagne. We are tasting um, an English sparkling wine made by Night Timber, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Perhaps we should just do our little um, champagne opening all. Are you ready to do this? I am, and now I've prepared this because, as you know, my preparation for these podcasts is obsessive. Um, so I thought I'd cut the uh, silver fall. I remember my father as well letting me pop the champagne cork for the first time when I was 28. No, no, when I was about, you know, 12 or 13 or whatever. And he said, don't you dare let the cork fly across the room. It should open with the noise of a lady's sigh, at which point my grandmother and my mother would probably sigh at my father. So the wrappings come off, the metal is released, and here I go. And I think I will let it go across my office just uh, for the uh, effect of it. Here we go. And now, oh, blimey. Whee. Lovely. That, was that exactly the same note? You're more musical than I, but that sounded like boop, exactly the same note. I think it was a G sharp or A flat, if you prefer. Yeah, I think so. 
That does not smell like I expected at all. English sparkling wine, Nye Timber. We have to say this is a premium English sparkling wine. In my experience, most English wine is premium because it's quite expensive because we don't produce enough of it. So therefore, they have to make a margin on you know, on less pro- product, if you like. But anyway, we've got a Nye Timber who have been knocking out English sparkling wine for two or three decades. They've got a very good reputation. They've won lots of competitions where they've beaten champagne when it comes to blind tastings and all the rest of it. But I just want your first impressions on the wine. Tell me about... I don't even need to worry about the look of it. It's a pale lemon sparkling wine, I assume. I want to know what you're getting in your olfactory bulb. There is something extraordinary uh, happening in my olfactory bulb right now. This does not smell of champagne to me. Ah, what champagne have you been drinking? (laughs) Maybe I'm missing something, but it does not smell of champagne. But this is funnel. This is all good. So tell me what you think you're smelling. Well, I don't want to say truffle because I might get into trouble, but it's something organic. It's something soily. What's going on? You'll definitely get into truffle if you say trouble. (laughs) Am I allowed to drink it yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wicked. It is not champagne to me, and I can't describe what that uh, taste is, but it was a real surprise, I have to say. Was it a nice surprise? Do you know what? It wasn't completely, I have to say. It breaks my heart. It's an English sparkling wine, but it's a taste that it could be I'm not used to it. But it's not, and it's not what I expected. So this familiarity thing comes in again for me. You know, I expect to taste a champagne taste, which is why I probably struggled with Prosecco and Carver a little bit. Carver to a lesser extent, but we'll talk about that, I guess, I'm sure. But there is something organic and soily in this, which is not quite sitting right with me. Let me help you out a bit. And I, and I understand where you are. There is an incredible nose on this night timber english spark, sparkling wine by the way it's 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 nv which means non-vintage so this hasn't come from one year the process has involved wine that's been made over more than one year that's why it's non-vintage in terms of the aromas and i've just had a sip as well to me classic classic taste of the effect of second fermentation going on in the bottle people are thinking what's he on about it smells to me and tastes of bread dough and yeast and biscuit and pastry it's yes re- yeah it's really 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 yes 100 percent. You, you've got it um yeah it's the bread when you said bread dough ting something went off in my mind and that was it yep you've done it you will get these tastes in well-made sparkling wine because just to explain champagne which we are not drinking but this night timber sparkling wine will have been made in the same way as champagne is made and the same way that some other sparkling wines are made. Other sparkling wines in France are called Cremant and they're often made in the same way as champagne. Carver from Spain is made in the same way as champagne. And this wine, this Night Timber, has been made in the same way as champagne. Okay, they're going, stop saying that. How is it blinking made? It's made in the traditional method. What the hell is the traditional method? (laughs) Basically, the point Mm. is, obviously, you've got sparkles, you've got fizz in your wine. What's causing the fizzle? I would imagine that is a gas, and I would imagine it's colourless, flavourless gas, by the name of carbon dioxide. Correct. And as we know, carbon dioxide is one of the results of fermentation, yeah? If that fermentation is happening in in, an enclosed space, and the carbon dioxide cannot get out, then you're going to have bubbles. And that's what we've got here. So the carbon dioxide here tells us that okay possibly carbon dioxide has been injected into this bottle of wine to make it fizzy that's how carbonated drinks like a soda stream like a soda stream except that's not how it's made i will just explain um with champagne and what's called if you like the traditional method of producing sparkling wine you start off with an ordinary still wine okay so let's just say for the sake of argument you make 
a white wine out of Chardonnay grapes, for example, and you deliberately make it so it's about 11% alcohol by volume, so a bit on the light side, you then put some sugar into that still wine with a bit of yeast, and you then put a top on that wine. The yeast is going to eat the sugar. Of course it is. Yep. And it's going to ferment that little bit of sugar and turn it into alcohol. So you're going to end up with the base wine being 11% plus that extra bit of alcohol produced by that fermented sugar. Ah, so you want to have the base wine at a lower percentage so you don't have a, a champagne that knocks your socks off at a too high a percentage alcohol. Correct. And the genius thing is you can actually work out it's quite a simple bit of maths really how much sugar you need to create a certain amount of alcohol if you have 17 grams of sugar that relates to one degree of alcohol so oh 17 grams of sugar per unit extra unit of alcohol so if you put 24 grams of sugar plus yeast into a bottle of base wine that's 11 percent, what's the final wine going to be in terms of alcohol so 17 grams is going to give you uh one extra percentage 24 is probably one and a half 17s so one and a half extra points giving you a 12 and a half percent champagne i think rich yeah you see that's great more importantly you've produced carbon dioxide because remember sugar plus yeast equals alcohol plus carbon dioxide and the other thing just to very briefly mention and it goes back to something we did in episode four when we talked about wine history the other thing that carbon dioxide does is that it, it creates pressure and you need to have pressure in the bottle to keep it, you get the right amount of fizz. Four grams of sugar gives you one bar of pressure. So if you put 24 grams of sugar for a second fermentation in a bottle of base wine at 11%, you're going to end up with 12.5% alcohol wine and six bars of pressure, which gives you a really nice fizzy wine. Oh, I love the science. I love the way that you can actually turn this into numbers. That is absolutely awesome. And Something occurred to me, right? And this is maybe a sign that I'm learning something. I've noticed where Champagne is. It's sort of northeast of Paris. It's a small area, but it's north, right? And I noticed that I'm drinking a rather strange tasting English Champagne, but I'm sort of getting used to it because now I'm understanding. But something occurs to me. It's like this is kind of northern, close to the, the 50 end of 3050, um, to go back to um, episode two. And also you're adding sugar. So does that mean that you're creating a base wine, which is not going to be sweet, which is actually going to be quite unsweet, so that the sugar that you add is not going to um, oversweeten it. And that's why you can make Champagne at relatively north latitudes or am i getting somewhere near the truth you are all actually that's terrific you're dead right champagne and of course we're talking english sparkling wine the one we're tasting but actually climate wise latitude wise they're not so far apart so champagne is just below the 50th and southern england is just above the 50th you know the key thing here is all that when it comes to sparkling wine, you don't need to get really, really ripe grapes. You want your grapes to be just right, but what you really want is high acidity because high acidity just makes sparkling wine really refreshing and exciting with the bubbles. You don't want wine that's lacking acidity. So a cool climate really suits sparkling wine. That's why England, southern England, is so good at making sparkling wine because our climate is getting a bit warmer despite this wretched summer. That's why, you know, with the experience now of 30 plus years that many of these people have like Nightimber, they're making fabulous wines and they're beating champagne producers in blind tastings. And, and that's fantastic. Let's just talk about grapes briefly. The champagne grapes, if you're in champagne, can only be made by three grapes, champagne, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. Uh, not champagne. You mean Chardonnay. 
You said three grapes, oh. and the first one was champagne. <laughs> Let me say that again. Whoops. And I'm learning. <laughs> I'm glad you spotted that deliberate mistake. Yeah, normally we're talking Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and another black grape variety called Pinot Meunier. Those are the champagne varieties, okay? We cannot say this is English champagne. This is English sparkling wine. Champagne comes from champagne, and that's that. And they've fought long and hard. Uh, to have that right is champagne an appellation it is so, so champagne is, is an appellation and champagne is a style of sparkling wine champagne is also what vladimir putin wants to call russian sparkling wine yeah. and he wants champagne from france to be called french sparkling wine thanks vladimir that's a nice one <gasps> never gonna happen surely that i mean that is wars have been fought over less surely what's the matter yeah, with the man well. Oh, we can bring it back to what we just talked about the second fermentation in the bottle that's all very well so we've now got a still wine that was 11% alcohol with a bit of extra fermentation going on inside the bottle that got it up to 12.5%. Happy days. With all those lovely bubbles. Happy yep. days. One little problem. We've got dead yeast cells in the bottle because we've had to add yeast to do that second fermentation. Is that a problem? Got it. Let's say it's one that's been got over. Yes, and that is the start, and this is what we're tasting in this wine. And a classic taste, I suppose, of a premium sparkling wine, champagne plus other premium sparkling wines, is that you're often tasting what are called autolytic notes. Autolysis is the process by which you know, a body is broken down. And what happens when the yeast consumes the sugar, even though we've only added a bit of yeast to consume only a little bit of sugar, once the yeast has done its job, it dies, and you end up with dead yeast cells. Do you remember we talked about this in the winemaking app, and they're called lees, L-E-E-S for sugar, lees. It's the contact yep. of the wine with the lees in the bottle that gives you these yeasty, bready, briochey, pastry aromas and flavours, and that's what we're tasting. Oh, that is remarkable. So it's not a problem, it's a feature as we would say in the software world. I have a question, very important question, because it's it's confusing me. Maybe it's confusing people who are listening to this, but it's about vintage. The word vintage, which has a connotation all its own, like vintage, you know, sounds like quality. So we're talking about NV here. So you see NV on the bottle, and that means non-vintage. And that means that the base wine, in this case, is not necessarily grapes from the same year. They've blended them to take out the rough corners of some years and, and uh, become sort of more uniform, homogenous, as it were. There's basically two types of champagne, or indeed sparkling wine, non-vintage where it's mixture, and vintage where it's not, because they're confident they've got a really pucker year. Have I got that right? Correct. Ah, brilliant. I've learnt something, as usual. We've just been talking about this traditional method whereby the second fermentation takes place inside the bottle. There's a much kind of easier way of doing it, and that is you have the second fermentation happening inside a tank. A tank has advantages, obviously, because it can hold a lot more wine, and you can therefore produce it sort of on a bigger scale and therefore sell it less expensively. And, of course, this is where we'd be talking about uh, the other great world market leader in terms of sparkling wine and that is Prosecco which is Italian Prosecco and it comes from the, um, northeast Italy the area around Venice massive areas where made from the, a grape called Glera but you don't find Prosecco made inside a bottle with second fermentation going on inside the bottle the base wine will be put into a tank and then the the uh, extra sugar and yeast will be added inside the tank to do that second fermentation and then the wine will be bottled straight from the tank into bottles already containing carbon dioxide to avoid any oxygen going in there and you end up with lots of sparkling very fruity style of sparkling wine going on because what happens with Prosecco is that the dead yeast cells that we've just been talking about they are filtered out very quickly so you don't have any of that contact what you end up with is a very 
fruity, quite simple, sparkling wine, which the British particularly love, and it's called Prosecco. And I don't mind a glass of Prosecco, but give me something like Nine Timber or or um, or Carver, actually. I mean, Nine Timber and Champagne, you know, these are expensive wines. You know, most people are not drinking them very often. I think Carver's a great example from Spain because guess what? It's they and again you can buy a Carver for six ninety-nine or uh, all the way up to fifty pounds plus. The point is Carver is made in the same way as Champagne, the traditional method. So you do have a little bit of Lee's contact going on in Carver. But it's really important to say that in premium sparkling wines and especially in Champagne, you have a minimum of of, of uh, 12 months contact with the Lee's, 15 months overall aging of the wine before it's even released and for vintage champagne they don't even release the wines for three years because they want to build up all that complexity in the bottle before it even goes on the market something like carver you might have maybe six nine months twelve months on the lease so you may have a little bit of bready thing going on but it's not champagne it's just a particularly nice form of sparkling wine i think and and frankly i think carver's carver's great gosh that's really interesting is that i didn't know all this until literally um, I got the notes for this episode and I really didn't understand it until you actually explained it. To me, Carver is closer to Champagne. I just felt that instinctively uh, than Prosecco. But uh, there's nothing wrong with Prosecco either. It just feels to me to be more of a different thing, really. For you to explain the lease, the lees, the lees, as being a sort of factor in the doughiness uh, because it's sort of residual uh, yeasty, bready stuff makes perfect sense uh, based on my experience. You're having another glass. Good for you. Okay, y'all. Just before we have a quick peep at those pinks again, with your eyes closed or however you're going to do it, just a quick word about the wine list and what Shea Bruce restaurant in London's wine list saying about pink and fizz. Yes, indeed. So the pink first, um, there are a few, six. None of them are the ones that we've tasted today, but there are three French, one English called Black Book. Crouch Valley Vineyard, London. Isn't it nice to have a vineyard that you can pronounce really easily? <laughs> uh, although you're pretty good at French. Black Book, Crouch Valley Vineyard, London, England. I don't know why I said it with an northern accent because it won't be anywhere near Yorkshire. So we've got three French, one Italian rosé, uh, one South African, and uh, yep, the rest are French. And we won't go on about the bubbly other than to say on Shea Bruce's wine list, there's lots of bubbly. Correct, including rosé champagne. Four rosé champagnes, including a Bollinger. And just to say, all uh, rosé champagne, we touched on it earlier when we talked about rosé. The one place in the European Union you can blend a red wine with a white wine is in champagne. So you would blend some Pinot Noir, some Pinot Meunier or both with a bit of Chardonnay and you'd end up with your rosé colour and that would be your base wine. And then you do your second fermentation, as we've just described, discussed and tasted in the bottle and you would end up with your pink champagne what a perfect arc talk about pink then talk about champagne and finally we see a pink champagne on the list of your favorite restaurant one of mine chez bruce in wandsworth london perfect right i'm kind of nervous for the next bit Rich. well i was about to let you go and then i realized you've got a the mere matter of an exam to take so all <laughs> let's yep. um eyes closed or however you want to do it yep so you want me to taste one of the rosés don't you I want you to taste both. I'd like you just to smell and taste them and then tell me which one is which and then reveal to yourself which one is which and you know what, which ones they are because of the colour. I've done it. I've done it already. Rich, I'm learning. I take one taste, I will bet my mortgage and one of my children 
on that one being the Tavel. It is as well. I can reveal. I just opened my eyes. I'm so, so confident. I've done it. Yep, that was easily, easily uh, recognisable as a Tavel. So I'm sort of, in a very minor way possible, improving. Well, all you've got one out of one, which is, I mean, I said you did very well when you got naught out of one, so goodness knows what I'm going to say now. It's just, I mean, just universally, intergalactically well done or something. That'll do. Great just to build on, on obviously, a bit of experience from previous apps and also to have an, an insight in, in, into this you know, slightly different world of, of pink and fizzy wine. Have you enjoyed it? Does it make sense? I've enjoyed it much more than I thought, and I knew I'd enjoy it a lot. So uh, that says a lot. I loved the rosés, both of them, actually. And I think I would probably, if I was going to buy one, I'd probably actually buy the um, supermarket Cote de Provence. And like I say, sit outside with a book, hopefully with a close family member or friend around me, staying quiet. The champagne, sorry, the sparkling wine from England. Do you know what? I'm going to have to get used to if I was going to enjoy that. I have to say the yeasty, doughy, bready kind of flavour kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. I think I'm used to more subtlety because like I say, I... I've I've probably been a bit spoilt in my uh, upbringing because although we didn't have it very often when we did, Dad got a decent champagne in. So I love the uh, idea of the double the double fermentation, and I've learned about short maceration versus direct press versus mixing the three ways of creating a rosé. And beautifully, I've heard about the mathematics of using sugar to a create more alcohol and b create pressure those lovely co2 bubbles which make champagne such a beautiful celebratory uh wine so thank you very much for guiding me through i'm absolutely chuffed that i got my taste test right and i did it immediately there's absolutely no doubt in my mind so very very pleased with myself and um thank you richard my pleasure oh i think on that note we better go off and have a I was about to say, go and have a beer. Go and have a glass of sparkling wine to celebrate your exam success. Well done, all. 100%. Step up from 0% mm. previously. And uh, let's see you next time. Take it away, all. I suppose we better say what the wines are next time because we're talking about food. We are talking about food. We are going to be tasting, wine-wise, we're going to be tasting Gewürztraminer from Alsace in France. And we're also going to be tasting the Wine Society's Lange Nebbiolo which is a really exciting, highly acidic, highly tannic variety from Piemonte in uh, northwest Italy. These are two really extraordinarily interesting grape varieties, one white, one red. We're going to be looking at them through the lens of food, and uh, we may be getting a bit of help from our friends. Yeah, let's just say Ep9 is going to be interesting, Ol. Thank you so much, Pink and Fizz, and Ol... I'll see you next time. You bet. Pink and Fizz is out. Looking forward very much uh, to the Food Glorious Food episode. I wish you the very best and thank you for yet more bits of my um, education. We will see you next time on The Wine List. Uh, Please comment uh, on Facebook and on Twitter and on our website. Uh, Generally speaking, our handle is at Wine List Pod. One word. I thank you and see you next week, Richard.